Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord to seek His guidance on our study today. Father, we're thankful that we have Your Word, that You have revealed Yourself to us, and that You have given us Your Word so that we may learn to think about every issue in life. That in Your Word, You have addressed us through various means and methods of literature, through historical literature, legal literature, uh, poetic literature, epistolary literature. And, Father, it is through these various means that you are able to communicate to us that which we must learn, that which we must study, that by incorporating the principles, the ideas in your word into our thinking, that we can think as you think and reflect you and your character to the world around us as we continue to work out the creation mandate to subdue the world. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might come to a greater understanding of the significance, importance, the centrality of your word in our life and its power. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in 2 Kings. We studied 2 Kings chapter 1 last time, and we are on the cusp of going into the second chapter of 2 Kings, which is one of the uh, more remarkable chapters and events. It's described in these uh, two books we refer to as First and Second Kings. For in 2 Kings chapter 2, we see a transition that takes place, a transition of spiritual Authority in Israel that will transpire as Elijah, who has been the prophet, the spokesperson for God for the uh, last 10 or 15 years or so, is taken to be face-to-face with the Lord in a remarkable transition that means that he does not undergo physical death. And there is a transfer of authority from Elijah to his successor, Elisha. And a lot of people may get confused because of the similarities of those names, but it is Elisha's ministry that expands to an even greater ministry than that of Elijah. It is It reflects something that also is transpiring in Israel, and that is the development of the prophetic office 
and we see that under Elijah, uh, something called the School of the Prophets has begun to develop, and this is going to lay the foundation for a small uh, revival, at least among the people, even though the leadership doesn't really uh, change much in the northern kingdom. But it's going to have its impact throughout both the north and the south. We see that in the northern kingdom, we have seen that under Ahab and Jezebel, the northern kingdom has reached the very uh, nadir of their spiritual life as they have succumbed to the uh, fertility religions of the Canaanites and the, the life and the uh, morals, the decisions, the everyday living of the people in the northern kingdom isn't any different from that of the Canaanites who had preceded them. And so that is what has caused God to send Elijah as his representative, as his spokesperson, to challenge them with their disobedience to announce the judgment of God in the drought that had taken place earlier in 1 Kings uh, 17 and 18. And in 18, we see the uh, challenge between Elijah and Baal, the so-called God God of fertility, of lightning, rain, thunder, all of those things. Um, all of those things. And then subsequently the impact, the continued challenge of of, uh, Elijah on the kingship of Ahab, the announcement of his death, uh, his eventual death we saw in 1 Kings uh, 22. And then last time we looked at the uh, fulfillment of God's promise to destroy the house of Ahab, and that landed on Ahaziah, his son, and that's the last thing we read about in chapter 1, is the death of Ahaziah. And if you look over at chapter 3, verse 1, we see the beginning of the next uh, in line, which is Jehoram, the brother of Ahaziah. And it is in Jehoram, uh, finally, that we will see the culmination of that prophecy to end the house of, of, of Ahab. But sandwiched between chapter 1 and chapter 2, we have the death of Elijah. And it is inserted between the death of Ahaziah and the beginning of Jehoram's reign to make it stand out, to make it, uh, to make it a focal point because of the, its significance. And it is not going, even though Elijah had performed several great miracles and was a spokesperson for God and had made an impact on the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is still apostate. The northern kingdom is still in rebellion against God. And even though you had this uh, tremendous prophet who called down fire from heaven at Mount Carmel and then subsequently with these two groups of uh, soldiers that had come to uh, take him Uh, forcibly to bring him before the king, uh, there's no change. The change will come. It will come slowly. It will come under the ministry of his successor, Elisha. And Elisha's ministry continues actually until the 12th chapter of uh, 2 Kings, though he is not mentioned in, in several of the chapters. So we see this transition from one prophet to the other, 
And that brings into focus for us the ministry of the prophet. As it develops in Israel, doesn't come to its fullest form and function until after Elijah and Elisha. There's this huge transition that takes place here, especially as more and more of the kings become rebellious. That brings the ministry of the prophets to the forefront. And there's a lot of misunderstanding as to the significance of the prophet. When normally we think of a prophet or prophecy, we think of uh, telling the future, foretelling. Sometimes you'll hear preachers uh, talk about the role of the prophet as forthtelling or foretelling. And that gets a little closer to the truth, but the really the prophetic sense in terms of future orientation is really secondary to the role of the prophet. And so what I want to do this morning is to have us reflect a little bit upon the significance of the prophet in terms of being a the communicator of God's word and the one who is challenging people to obedience. Uh, there's a difference between a prophet and a teacher. There's a difference between a prophet and someone who was simply an, uh, an evangelist or expositor of the word or in the Old Testament, a difference between a prophet and a priest. The prophet had a unique role. So the first thing we should note about the prophet was that he was a unique representative of God to the people. The priest represents the people toward God, but the prophet represented God to the people. He is God's spokesperson, and he addresses all layers of society. He addresses the king, and he addresses the people. And he addresses them from the viewpoint, from the vantage point of the Mosaic Covenant. The first prophet in Israel is Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, Moses had prophesied that there would be a greater prophet who would come. This is a, an allusion to the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is a recognition that Moses himself was a prophet. He was the leader of the people, and he was a member of the uh, Levitical tribe, so he functioned in some ways as a priest, as the Lord Jesus Christ will function as prophet, priest, and king. So Moses functioned as a prophet, as a priest, and as a leader of the people. But as a prophet, he uh, is responsible for delivering to the people the law, and he expounds upon the law, but he is a spokesperson for God, and he is speaking for God. As a prophet, he is going to then uh, take the law, which he has already given, which was received at Mount Sinai, um, uh, Exodus chapter 20 through uh, chapter 40 and on into Leviticus. All this is part of the Mosaic law. But in Deuteronomy, we see Moses functioning as the prophet who is challenging the people in terms of the obligations, requirements of the law, that if they are obedient, God will bless them. If they're disobedient, God will bring judgment upon them, commonly referred to as cursing. Cursing in the scripture is not uh, throwing some sort of uh, black magic uh, curse on somebody. It is an act of divine judgment. And so what God states is that everything in terms of his relationship to Israel is going to be governed by this contractual uh, relationship, this contract, this covenant that is laid out in the Mosaic Law. And when the people disobey, 
then God is going to send a spokesperson who's going to function like a prosecuting attorney, and he is going to bring the nation up on charges and outline how they have broken or violated the covenant or the contract and what the penalty will be. That is the role of the prophet. So the prophet is a communicator. He is God's communicator to the people. As such, part of his role will involve the oversight of inscripturating God's revelation, writing down that which is to be preserved down through the ages. So part of the role of the prophet in the Old Testament was to oversee uh, the writing, the preservation, the copying of Scripture so that it is handed down from one generation to another. So we believe that uh, Old Testament books were all written under the oversight of a prophet. Many of them we do not know uh, who the exact prophet was. For example, during the period that's covered by First and Second Samuel, there were uh, various prophets. There's Samuel at the beginning. Later, there's Nathan and Gad. And then on into the period of the kings, which covers basically a uh, about a five to six hundred year period, there were many other other prophets. And so as they wrote, then later prophets would then collate and put together uh, what had been recorded by earlier prophets, all of which is done under the under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So it involved the addressing the king because the king in Israel does not stand apart from the law. He is under the law. He is under the authority of God. The, the government of Israel is not autonomous. It's not independent from God. And therefore, the prophet stands in a unique role to address and to challenge the king with his obligations to God. So the king is under the authority of, of God, under the authority of the prophet. And this, of course, sets up for tremendous tension and conflict uh, when the king, especially in the northern kingdom, when all of the kings are evil, when the king is acting in disobedience to God. He also challenges the people because the people fail in their responsibilities as outlined in, in the covenant, in the Mosaic law. It is the responsibility of the people to love one, uh, love their neighbor as themselves. Leviticus chapter uh, 18. They are to love their neighbor as themselves, and that involves taking care of widows, taking care of orphans, taking care of the poor. All of these things are a function of the individual, not the function of government per se. So when you get into your major uh, prophets, which is a term that, re- that refers or describes the length or size of their writings, not the that some are more important than others. You get into Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, very long books. Uh, you also have it in some of the minor prophets as well. There is this challenge to the people because they have become unrighteous, and they all they care about is themselves. All they care about is furthering their own agenda, furthering their own uh, acquisition of material wealth, and they are no longer concerned about the the widow, the orphan, the poor, and they don't fulfill their responsibility to love their neighbors themselves. It's not a challenge. What liberal theologians do is they come along and they look at that as a as a that the government is. Uh, what is being challenged? No, it's the individual that's being challenged because there, it's the individual responsibility to uh, take care of these needs. Not it is not seen as governmental responsibility. But then there's some other things that pre, that prophets did 
They would challenge a king, challenge the people in areas of disobedience. They oversaw the writing, preservation of Scripture. But they also did other things so that this term prophet isn't one that fits neatly into our little categories. You have the, the word is used in some unusual ways. And one of the more unusual ones is in First Chronicles uh, chapter 5, verse 3, talking about Jeduthun, who was uh, uh, one in, of the priestly clans. The sons of Jeduthun, Gedaliah, Zeri, uh, Jeshiah, Shimei, Hashabiah, and Mattathiah, six under the direction of their father Jeduthun, who prophesied, look at that verb, prophesied with a harp to give thanks and to praise the Lord. See, that doesn't fit quite with our neat categories of what a prophet does. So prophecy is also related to, in some way, to singing, and it is the uh, expression of doctrine in terms of music. So it is related to the law. Now, if you go back and you look at the Psalms, which are the words of the hymns, and you think about the focus of the, many of the Psalms is on what? It's on the character of God, but it's also many are meditations on the law, God's faithfulness to Israel, God's deliverance of Israel, his grace, all of which within the context of Israel comes back to the law. And so that is how the music aspect relates to prophecy. So when we think of a prophet, this is a, a legal function that expresses itself in a lot of different ways, even though uh, many of them are, uh, we can easily understand when it gets into areas such as this, it's a little, uh, a little unusual. Then you have instances like Saul, after Saul is anointed by uh, Samuel to be the king, then he is uh, numbered among the prophets and he is singing, probably. And they spend the day prophesying. And so these kinds of things don't easily fit into our our uh, preconceived categories, but I think that if we if we think in terms of this, the fundamental feature of the prophet as a as a attorney representing God, prosecuting attorney, then everything else can can be organized uh, under that that function. Second thing about the prophet is that the prophet is not a teacher; he is a spokesperson for God. He's not a teacher; he is a spokesperson for God whose message comes from God. There's a difference between a prophet and a teacher. The prophet says, thus saith the Lord. And then he, it's like after that, he's putting in quotation marks exactly what God said. A teacher is explaining and giving instruction about what God said and how it is to be applied. That's why you have this distinction that's made in the Old Testament between the prophet and the priest, and the priest would be sent out at times to teach the people. For example, under uh, Jehoshaphat, as we'll see when we get into the third chapter of Second Kings, he is going to send out teams of priests throughout the area of Judah in order to instruct people on the law. That is a distinct function from being a spokesperson from God where you're, you're basically like a direct mouthpiece. You get into the New Testament, you have a distinction between the prophets and apostles who are the foundation of the church, according to Ephesians 2.20, and then later they are, and those are temporary gifts. The permanent gifts 
relate to the evangelist and the pastor and teacher, that is the permanent communication gifts. The New Testament prophets and apostles are responsible for the communication uh, of revelation, direct revelation from God, whereas evangelists and pastors and teachers are explaining either the gospel or the whole counsel of God in the case of the pastor in the case of the pastor teacher. So the message of the prophet is unique uniquely given to him by God, some of which becomes scripture. So we have a New Testament passage such as Second Peter one twenty and twenty one, which is one of the key passages on inspiration of scripture and the process or the mechanics of how God uh, in, gave the word through the prophets or breathed it, breathed it out. First uh, Timothy or Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen says that all Scripture is uh, not inspired but outspired, as it were. It is breathed out. That neustos in the Greek. It is breathed out by God. So in Second Peter one twenty and twenty one begins with a causal participle because we know this first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, the word there that's translated interpretation is, is used a little differently than the way we use interpretation. We use interpretation, this person looks at the Scripture and says it means this, and that person looks at the Scripture and says it means that. And so we say, well, they differ in terms of their interpretation. That's not what this is talking about. This is using the word interpretation in terms of that as God gave them a message, they don't interpret it on their own terms. They're not explaining it on their own terms. In fact, the word that is translated interpretation can also be uh, translated explanation. But the one thing that is missing in the uh, in the translation here, you have the the verb is. Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. And in Greek, there are two existential verbs. Is, the to be verb, this is John. And then there is the verb genomai, which expresses coming into being. And you see the emphasis in the dis- made and the distinction on those in the first chapter of John. In the first chapter of John, we read, in the beginning was the word, and that's the Verb a me, meaning to be or is in the past tense, in perfect tense. In the beginning was the word. It continually existed in past time. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in John 1, 4, we have, and a, then, then came a man named John. And it shifts from the verb a me to genomai. Because a me indicates existence, and when used in the imperfect tense there in John 1.1, 1, 1, it, uh, it indicates e- eternal existence in the past. But genomai indicates something that comes into existence. There's a time when it doesn't exist. Now it comes into existence. So that's the word that's used in 1 Peter 1.20, not a me. Not, it shouldn't be translated is. But the idea is that no prophecy of Scripture came into existence through a private explanation or interpretation. In other words, this isn't something generated privately by the by the uh, prophet, but it is something that was given to 
to him. And this is what is explained in verse 21. For prophecy never came by the will of man. Its source is not the will of man. But holy men of God, and the holy is there in the King James, but it's probably not in uh, the original. It's a textual problem there. Men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So it is God the Holy Spirit who is the one who is energizing and communicating through them and overseeing the process, guaranteeing that what they would write would be free from human error, free from human viewpoint, free from human opinion, and that it would only express the eternal truths of God that would then be uh, preserved down through the ages as the as the scripture. So the prophet gives a message that is uniquely given by God. Prophet said many other things under the inspiration of God that are not inscripturated. Only some of what they said was inscripturated, but everything they said as a prophet under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit would have been uh, without error. Error. Third thing that we see is that the the foundation of the content, the basis for their lawsuit, their challenge to the people was always the the primary stipulations in the Mosaic Law. The primary stipulations in the Mosaic Law, for example, Deuteronomy uh, six five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the summation of all of the Mosaic Law. So when the people fell short of this, when they became involved either in idolatry or they became involved in uh, social sins that violated or attacked or assaulted other human beings because they were in the image of God, so then there would be uh, this, uh, the, the prophet would be sent by God to challenge them. So first and foremost, they would challenge idolatry in all of its forms. This is a fourth point. The prophet would challenge uh, idolatry in all of its forms. This is summarized in Deuteronomy 4:15 through 18, but clearly stated in many other places. The first law in the Ten Commandments has to do with the fact there shall be no other gods before me. Second is you shall make no uh, graven image. You shall make no idols. And so in Deuteronomy 4.15, as a prophet, Moses challenges them and says, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything else that creeps on the ground." Why? Because man is set as the representative of God. He's created Genesis 1.26 in the image and likeness of God to rule over what? To rule over the uh, birds of the sky, the beasts of the field, and the fish of the sea. So don't reverse this, God is saying, by worshiping created things. Worship only the Creator. So this becomes the primary focus of the prophet's message is to challenge them when they get involved in idolatry. This is what we saw with Elijah. This is his challenge is that the 
northern kingdom has come under uh, the under, under the oppression of Baalism and all of this idolatry, and so he is out there challenging again and again and again the errors of idolatry in his generation. The same thing is true for a believer today. We challenge a thinking that is on the basis of any kind of human viewpoint authority and especially within our own soul. Now, we don't go out as a prophet did, but on the basis of what the prophets, the prophets say. So that as a pastor, a pastor is not a prophet, but a pastor will come along and on the basis of what the prophets say in the Old Testament, you can make direct application and correlation to what is happening politically, socially, economically, uh, whatever in uh, any area of our of our lives. This is under the category of application. As we take what was going on in the Old Testament, that's the role of the prophet. He addressed all of these issues in Israel and challenges them on those when they are getting out of line. And so then when a pastor comes along on the basis of what is said in the Scripture in teaching that, then you make correlation by virtue of application, and individuals can as well in different areas. So we see that that basic principle. fifth thing that we see is that the prophet exposes the attempts in uh, Israel in society, either in the political realm or among society as a whole, the prophet exposes the attempts to trust in human strength, in human devices to find success and happiness in life. This is seen very clearly in one passage in Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17 verses 5 through 9. There, Jeremiah writes, thus says the Lord. That's what he's doing. He's just a mouthpiece for God. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man. When a nation, when leaders in a nation put their trust in human abilities, human ideas, human concepts, uh, and that they are building their house of cards based on human viewpoint, then it will eventually fall apart. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. When our thinking is conformed to the world as opposed to transformed uh, into and, and thinking in terms of the word of God, then the result is going to be complete and total failure. Uh, this is described picturesquely in verses in verse 6 for he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes that if you're not operating on divine viewpoint you're not going to understand good when you see it you'll call bad good and good bad who shall be like a shrub in the desert shall not see good when uh, see when good comes but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness and a salt land which is not inhabited in verse 7, the contrast, blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, that is, when adversity comes, when difficulty comes, when there's economic adversity, military collapse, any of these things. The person who is 
trusting in the Lord has a hope that can survive any change. Just thought I would see if anybody was listening this morning. We hear a lot about hope and change. Our only hope is in the Lord, and the only change that matters is that which is changed by means of God the Holy Spirit. Uh, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. That's the only hope that matters. He shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from uh, yielding fruit. And then in conclusion, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? See, the heart can easily lead us into trusting in man, and, and it deceives us. That's what we studied in the last couple of lessons with Ahab at the Battle of Ramoth-Gilead, and then again with Ahaziah last, last week in his thinking that he actually controlled the prophet of God. The heart is deceitful and leads to self-destruction. In 6, we see that the prophet focused his ministry on God's character, specifically his faithfulness and his righteousness and his justice. That seems to be the focal point of, of the message. God is faithful to his word, faithful to his promise. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, verse 9 states, Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God. He is, he, he is the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. God is faithful. He never changes. He is always righteous. He is always just. And then the prophet always, under point number uh, seven, the prophet always focuses on the divine solution. There are problems that face the nation of Israel. There are problems that face our nation. We can make these kinds of applications as teachers The nation faces problems. Individuals face problems. But the only solution that matters is the divine solution. We need to learn to trust in God. We need to rely upon him because he is able. He is uh, omnipotent. He knows our problems even before they occur. He's omniscient. And he has already supplied everything we need in order to solve uh, the problem. Jeremiah uh, expresses this in verse, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. We tend to think that uh, education, power, money solve problems. They do not. The only thing that solves problems is humility toward God and the application of his word. Verse 24, but let him who glory, glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. And the ultimate solution that the Lord provided is also the point of the prophet's message, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Everything in the prophet's message points to the need for a God-man Savior. The point in all of their condemnation is that man cannot solve his problem on his own, but there has to be a man to solve the problem, but that man must be a unique man, the God-man. And this is best expressed in Isaiah. 
Isaiah 53, 5, and 6, talking about the servant of Yahweh, this whole section of Isaiah, from Isaiah 49 to, the, to 66. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant who is the Messiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by, by his stripes we are healed. The point is that he is the one who bore our punishment as our substitute. He paid the price in full. All of our sins are paid for. That we are all lost. We will not find our way. We're like sheep. We've all gone astray. Verse 6, we have turned everyone, no exceptions, we've turned everyone to his own way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the, the divine solution begins by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who died on our behalf, the one who paid the penalty for our sins. And then once we are saved, once we are in that new relationship with Christ as new creatures in Christ, we have access to understand the Word of God through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation is the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ isn't just those red letters in your red-letter Bible. The mind of Christ is everything that's from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation chapter 22. That is the mind of Christ, and it addresses every issue that we face in life, whether it has to do with business, whether it has to do with personal finance and economics, whether it has to do with government or politics, anything that we face in life, we get God's perspective on as represented in the Scripture, which is what we call divine viewpoint. But it starts by understanding grace, by humbling ourselves, recognizing we can't save ourselves. It's only provided through Jesus Christ who died for us. And then once we are saved, then we have access to the mind of Christ and the process of spiritual growth, which is to be transformed uh, from grace to grace as we grow and mature in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads together, close our eyes, close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by the fact that that your word did not come to us in just the writings of human beings who wrote down things that they thought were important, but that this was breathed out by you. It was overseen by God the Holy Spirit as he worked through the prophets of the Old Testament, apostles of the New, to write down the message that you had for us, that the oversight of God the Holy Spirit protected it from human error, human viewpoint, human opinion, so that all that is said within the Scripture is of eternal veracity, that by studying your word we come to think as you think, we see the issues of life for what they are, And we learn not to trust in the arm of flesh, but to trust in your powerful arm, that you are our rock, our fortress, you are our guide, you are our protector, and there is no hope, there is no happiness apart from you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone this morning who is here, who is unsure of their eternal destiny or uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make those both sure and certain. Scripture says Jesus Christ died on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sins. By trusting in him and him alone, 
you have eternal life. The instant you believe Jesus died for your sins, at that instant God the Father imputes to you the righteousness of Christ, declares you justified, gives you eternal life, and this can never be taken from you. This is your opportunity to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we've learned today, with the importance, the priority of your word in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.